0: Let's hear God's word. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen. He's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said.
1: Hey, I think Pete did really well for a last minute change, don't you? Friends, I want you to keep your Bibles open there, Mark 15. We are going to work our way through that text because we're thinking about Jesus the Saviour and that means looking at the cross and thinking about what the cross means. I'm going to pray for us that we might hear and understand God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you might speak to us through your Word so that we might meet Jesus. Help us to know the Saviour. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kalgoorlie, if I say the name of the town, uh, you think of one thing, or you should think of one thing, and that's gold. Uh, it is famous for being an incredible gold mining town. Next to the town there is this super pit, this open cut mine that is just at this absolute scar on the landscape, but they have mined a lot of gold there. But there's this funny little historical quirk about Kalgoorlie. The first settlers who arrived there in the 1890s, uh, they came for the gold, which was discovered just nearby. And they also noticed that all around the town of Kalgoorlie, there were these sparkly-looking rocks, um, shiny rocks with golden flecks. But they weren't going to be fooled. They knew fool's gold when they saw it, iron pyrite. Iron pyrite is this sparkly-looking gold that looks like gold, but it isn't gold. And so they simply took these rocks, kind of threw them out of the way. Actually, they used them for road base, for their streets. They mixed it into the mortar for their bricks. It was only a few years later, in 1896, that they discovered, jokes on them, it wasn't fool's gold. It was gold. And this actually led to a second gold rush where people literally tore up the streets. They tore down buildings to retrieve the gold that they had used as mortar in the buildings. You've got to love the irony of it what they expected to be true, what they thought to be true, you realise, well, you smile a little bit because you realise how ironic. They missed it. Now, I reckon the same thing happens with Mark's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. Mark actually wants us to see irony. Chapter 15 is this uh, chapter on the crucifixion and it is... Just as we've had it read, you realise it is a crushingly sad picture of the death of Jesus and the passage just simply lays out what happened. One of the saddest bits, I don't know if you felt this as it was being read, are the way that those people who gather at the foot of the cross, they gather not to pay homage to Jesus, but to mock him. And Mark seems to record all of the mockery in painstaking detail. And here's the reason why mark wants us to see that the mockers as they mock as they taunt actually jokes on them they can't see the enormity of what is happening right in front of their eyes now i want to give a little plug for a book here there is this wonderful book called scandalous by uh, the new testament scholar don carson he has this wonderful little chapter i love this chapter it's about the mockery at the foot of the cross And he teases out all the irony in their statements because every statement made by the mockers at the foot of the cross is deeply ironic. What was happening right before their eyes and what they said are two different things. So we're going to look at the mockery of uh, the mockers at the cross and we're going to see how they missed what was happening with Jesus and ironically how even the things that they say point us to what's really happening. So if you've got your Bibles open first group, the soldiers, the soldiers at the foot of the cross and they get a lot of focus. You see in verse 16, we're introduced to them, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. And in verse 17, they put a purple robe, do you see that? Verse 18, they began to call out. And then what follows right through the text are 13 they's. they, they, the soldiers, are the people who do the majority of the mocking and the mocking has one theme to it. Jesus is king. You, you hear it in what they do, right? They put a purple robe on him, verse 17. They give him a crown of thorns. Ironically, they cheer, Hail, King of the Jews. In verse 19, they fall on their knees in mock homage to the king. Mark actually wants us to see it, actually it's the focus of this whole passage. Um, The crucifixion is given verse 24 and verse 25 and then before it and after it is all the mockery of the soldiers as they poke fun of Jesus. See even there in verse 26, the written notice of the charge against him read, the King of the Jews. Hail the King of the Jews. Now we recently had a royal commission into the way our own soldiers, Australian soldiers, Treated Afghan prisoners of war during the the war in Afghanistan, and I've got to say some of the findings are horrific and shameful. But we know sometimes the way that soldiers can treat their prisoners with this kind of I don't know what the word is—gallows humour. That's what's happening here. King of the Jews, ha ha ha. He said he was king, but he's up on a cross. But Mark, as he writes this, he wants us to see that there's a deeper irony. They think they're belittling the man who would be king. But Mark wants us to see that their words actually speak truth. The person they are crucifying is the king. Actually, just a couple of chapters earlier, Jesus had been talking with his disciples how, yes, he was the Messiah, but he's the Messiah who had to go to Jerusalem to die and be crucified. In Mark chapter 10, James and John, these two disciples of Jesus, they come to Jesus and they're now assuming that he is the Messiah, the promised king, and they're thinking that they're about to march right into Jerusalem and claim the throne. And so they have one little request of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Simple request, right? Hey, Jesus, when you get your throne, would you mind giving us positions of power and authority? Is that all right, Jesus? Could you give us those? And Jesus' response to them is that, well, you don't know what you're asking. He actually tells his disciples that he has got to go, the Messiah has got to go and drink the cup, the cup of judgment. Being the king, being the ruler, being the one in charge, yes, that's what he is, but it means going to the cross in order to save. And so he says to James and John, "'You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles "'lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. "'Not so with you. "'Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, "'and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, "'for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve "'and give his life as a ransom for many.'" Yes, Jesus is saying, look, yes, I am the Messiah, but I'm going to the cross. I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, even as Jesus says this with his disciples, he upends their thinking about power. Greatness, power, authority, being at the top, all that is used to serve. Jesus himself, the king, He doesn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I apologise to those who've heard me tell this story. I've only got so many stories, okay? This one happened many, many years ago. One of Emma's university friends was getting married, and we were there at the reception and chatting to one of the guests, and he asked me, What do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a minister. And I was expecting the kind of normal reaction to that. Normally, people, when they find out you're the minister, they look horrified. And you can see them thinking to themselves, I didn't think I was on the table with the weirdos, but now I know. Instead, his kind of jaw opened, and he looked amazed, and he said, wow, that is, that is incredible. You are, you are so young to be a minister. This was a long time ago, okay just so you know. saying that. I said, thanks, that's, that's really kind of you and he continued and he said, so what are you the minister of? Minister of education? (laughs) Minister of transport? Uh, When I explained to him I was a minister of religion, he did look horrified and then he told me, this is what he said, hey the church is probably going to need to change their word for you because minister now means something else. I'm going to tell you, I'm not willing to give up the word. Our secular governments have borrowed that word from Jesus. They've taken the word minister because minister means servant, because that's what we want our governments to do, that to be the kind of leaders that Jesus describes here, to be the leaders who use their power for the good of others, to be leaders who serve. Now, you and I, that is so deeply ingrained in our thinking, we don't even think twice about it. Of course people in charge need to use their authority for the good of others that is profoundly christian deeply christian we think that because the powerful son of god jesus messiah did not come to be served but to serve now friends in our world uh power is a dirty word it is now authority is an evil thing it shouldn't have any privilege And we have this game that we kind of do in our society at the moment where we pretend that we don't have any of it. We pretend that we don't have power or authority because people have power, are generally bad people. Uh, Let me just say everyone has power and authority and privilege. As I look out this morning, there are many different people with different forms of power and authority here today. Whether you are the Minister of Education or you're a parent with a child or you're a teacher with students, You have power and authority. The question is not whether you have it or not. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Jesus shows us the better way. Power is used for others. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The soldiers at the foot of the cross, they mock him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And Mark wants us to see, oh, they've missed it. He was king, but not the king they were expecting. The king who came to give his life as a ransom for many. Second group of mockers. Um, These are people who, Mark records, they're just passing by. They had heard something of what had happened with this person, Jesus, and... It seems that they take this opportunity to go to the cross to pour their scorn on him. And their insults, the insults of this group, are connected to the temple. Have a look at verse 29. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Uh, Their anger at Jesus their scorn, is connected to the charges that have been brought against Jesus. At his trial, it had been suggested that Jesus would desecrate the temple. Back in chapter 14, it says this, uh, at at his trial, we heard Jesus say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days build another not made by man. Now, it sounds like they might have misheard Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't ever talk about destroying the Temple. He does predict that the Temple will come under the judgement of God, but you can't find anywhere in the Gospels Jesus saying, I am going to burn this Temple down. He does, however, talk about his body as the Temple. In John's Gospel, if you remember, he talks about the Temple of his body dying and being raised again in three days. John records for us that even the disciples at the time, they didn't get it. It was only looking back that they realised what it was that Jesus was talking about. So you wonder if maybe passers-by have half heard Jesus. They'd heard something of the fact that this guy, Jesus, spoke about the temple and they thought he was talking about the big building in the middle of town, Herod's temple. And they come and they say, well, Jesus, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it, uh, in three days come on do something come down from the cross and save yourself how pathetic this man who spoke against our temple look at how powerless he is now here's the irony of the taunt by staying on the cross jesus did do something to the temple he put a big out of business sign on the front door of the temple See, the temple was the place where the people of Israel went to meet with God, and it was supremely the place where sinful people could, through sacrifice, have their sin dealt with. Jesus, by staying on the cross, is about to provide the one final sacrifice for sin in his body, and through that, bring God close. Uh, Actually, I think you see the big exclamation mark on this with uh, verse 38, where at the moment that Jesus died, that the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. The mockers laugh and they say, how could this crucified fool lift a finger against our temple? And yet, and yet, something is happening here. By staying on the cross, Jesus becomes the new temple, the place where we meet with God, the old temple. Yes, there is an out-of-business sign because of the sacrifice Jesus has offered. Now, I think um, that theme here is wonderful good news because maybe today you feel some kind of distance from God. You feel it because of something you've done or something that you haven't done, and you're far from him. Here is the wonderful good news of the cross. Jesus did everything that the temple was meant to do. All that is needed, he's done. He gives the perfect sacrifice. It's him. And because of that, God draws close. Isn't that good news? The last group of mockers. Keep coming with me. It's the religious leaders. Now, I think these guys must have been loving this, don't you? All the way through Mark's Gospel, all the way through all the Gospels, they are just locked in this battle with the brilliance of Jesus. And finally, finally, they have this troublemaker nailed to the cross and you can't help but feel their delight in verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Do you hear the glee? They're enjoying it. Now, they had seen him save. They'd seen him heal the sick and make the lame walk again. Of course, they hadn't taken any of that seriously as a sign of who he is. He'd just been a pain in the neck. And finally, now they've got their man. He's nailed to the cross, and they're just there saying, Save yourself, Jesus. A lot like he did for all the other folk. And again, in their words, there is this wonderful, deeper irony. You see, it's because Jesus stays on the cross that he can save others. It's because he does not come down that he brings salvation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his death, Jesus had said that he would take the cup, if that is what his father willed, the cup of the righteous judgment of God. Jesus said that he would take what we deserve and pay for our sins. He would pay the price and that is the heart of the meaning of the cross. Jesus puts himself in our place. He dies under judgment so that our rebellion against him might be paid for. He is saviour because he didn't save himself. Now uh, this was meant to be a dry summer. Uh, it was meant to be, right? That's what the forecasters told us. It's ended up being a wet summer and we've had a tonne of very big storms like southeast Queensland is famous for. I-, I wonder if you can cast your mind back, I think it was just a few years ago, there was this story of a woman caught in a hailstorm. And do you remember there were these enormous grapefruit-sized... I can't even imagine that. That's huge. Grapefruit-sized hail that was smashing her car apart. And inside the car was this woman and her baby daughter and the story was that she jumped into the back seat and she put herself over the top of the baby seat. And in the papers, I don't, they published the pictures. There was her poor broken body, battered and bruised. Didn't save herself to save the little one. Here's the irony of the taunt of the religious leaders. It's because Jesus doesn't save himself that we are saved this is how jesus is our savior he does not stay save himself he stays there on the cross he takes the judgment that is ours friends i wonder if you agree with me that mark 15 has all of these wonderful kind of ironies those who called out their taunts they missed it they couldn't see what was actually happening Now, it's said that when an author includes irony in a text, they're winking at you. The idea being that they're asking you, do you get it? Do you see see it? Do you see the joke? Mark, I think, is doing that here. He's asking us if we can see it, if we can get it, if we can see beyond the mockery of the mockers and see the realities behind them. There's actually one person in this passage who sees what... The mockers can't and he does get it it's the centurion at the foot of the cross through everything that happens he actually sees what the mockers can't verse 39 and when the centurion who stood there in front of jesus saw how he died he said surely this man was the son of god Uh, we don't know what the centurion knew about jesus we don't know what he'd heard of him of jesus claims to be the messiah and from god We don't know what he knew but it's clear that he knows enough and as Jesus dies he sees enough to realise who Jesus is. And he actually, by the way, is the first person in all of Mark's Gospel to actually say Jesus, yes, he, he is the Son of God. He's the first person to see it. Here's what I think Mark is asking us, can you see it too? Are you like the centurion? Do you see clearly what it is that Jesus has done? Do you get it? I'm praying that we would. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you might open our eyes to the Saviour. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.